The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Internet Lawfare with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 3, 2024. This past week, tensions between the U.S. and Iran have been escalating due to a recent drone attack on a U.S. military base in Jordan where three soldiers were killed and 40 others were injured. This attack is the latest in a series of back-and-forth military actions between the U.S. and Iran-backed groups since the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from January 6, 2020, in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Scott R. Anderson, Bobby Chesney, Jack Goldsmith, Ashley Deeks, and Samuel Moyne to discuss the U.S. strike that killed Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps leader, Qasem Soleimani, the legal and policy implications of the strike, and more. Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, January 6th, 2020. It's another special emergency edition. On Friday, we did a special edition on the Qasem Soleimani strike, its implications for the broader Middle East and for U.S.-Iranian conflict and relations. Today, we're just talking law. My voice is gone, but I'm here We have in the Jungle studio Scott Anderson of Brookings and Lawfare and joining us remotely from far-flung corners on a Skype line are Jack Goldsmith joining us from Cambridge, Massachusetts, Sam Moyne joining us from Yale Law School, Ashley Deeks joining us from University of Virginia Law School in Charlottesville, Virginia, and of course, the one, the only Bobby Chesney joining us from the University of Texas at Austin. Thanks to you all for coming on. Bobby, I want to start with you. You tweeted yesterday that to say that something was legal is not to say that it is a good idea. And so I want to start by, first of all, having you flesh that idea out a little bit and a little sort of foot stomp the point that we are here not to talk about the merits of whether the uh, strike against Soleimani was wise or uh, a good idea or uh, will have bad consequences, but simply whether it was legally permissible. Can you kind of give us a, like, to what extent is that a distinction, the distinction that you made in that tweet? Is that a distinction that is sustainable in this area where the where the law and people's idea of reasonableness are so intertwined with one another? I think it's a really important distinction that gets lost all too often when people debate the legality of any particular measure. There is a tendency in our society to put so much emphasis on the law that once we perhaps make the decision that something is in fact legally uh, permissible, that that ends the analysis, that therefore it, it must also be moral, it must also be wise, but of course it doesn't necessarily check either of those boxes. Um, those of us who had been talking about the legality of the Soleimani strike online, especially on Twitter over the past couple of days, I think many of us were finding that 
the responses we were getting often weren't meeting the merits of the legal issues, but rather were assuming that if you argued that this was legally permissible, therefore you must also think this is an excellent idea. Uh, it may not be an excellent idea, but I think that our job as lawyers, those of us who want to comment on the legal framework, need to keep those things separated. So before we before we go on to anything else, does anybody either present in the studio or remotely disagree that it is wholly possible to keep these questions separate and that, you know, we had a big debate discussion uh, on the emergency podcast on Friday about the merits of the strike and which included some legal questions, but was fundamentally about the the policy desirability of having done it and the consequences of having done it. Today, we're going to ignore all of that and talk only about the law of it. Does anybody disagree that that is a, uh, as Bobby suggests, the proper uh, distribution of labor? I would. Okay, Sam, I I had a feeling I was going to hear from you on this. Well, no, I mean, you know, Bobby's taking the professional stance and it's it's quite right. Uh, But the the reality is that law is always politicized in this area, especially so in in the when it comes to international law, there's no other side we're really listening to. um, And there's no judge except that the United States controls the Security Council. So that we can never be found formally in violation of the United Nations rules of force, right? So uh, on the domestic front, Congress has been out to lunch uh, for a a long time. We can debate how long. So uh, the central point I want to make is that a lot of people care about these legal claims and not just on Twitter, and it's because they're really not about the law. They're about legitimation or delegitimation uh, of this president or of American war in this case or in general. And I, I do think we should talk about the law as law, but if we if we pretend too much that it's law, we miss the point of why we're talking about it. All right. So this brings me to a text exchange, Jack, that you and I had last night, where uh, which got into some of the points that 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 Sam just made, which is uh, the other, I think, important throat clearing to do before we dive into this which is your point that the entire law of this area is top to bottom uh, contested. So walk us through that a little bit and, uh, and explain what it is that we mean when we say we're talking about law here. Right. So I actually don't disagree with much of what Sam said, but let me try to put it. And I also don't disagree with what Bobby said. I agree with it um, completely. And I think from the just to do an introductory parenthetical, from the government lawyer perspective, when you're inside the government, it's very important to distinguish the law interpretation from policy decision uh, distinction. Otherwise, the lawyers end up making the decision, making the policy decision. That was a huge problem in the Bush administration. It may be a problem in this administration with Trump as president, but that that distinction is very important inside the government. Outside the government, it's 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 more problematic for reasons Sam said, and let me just say why I think that the law is contested in this area. And I'll give two examples. I'm going to focus primarily on uh, the president's power to use force under Article Two, and some self-defense ideas in international law. And in both contexts, um, both the domestic constitutional law and international law, we kind of have an original text, the UN Charter, the U.S. Constitution. And then we've got decades and in some cases centuries of practice interpreting uh, those documents. And under both international law and constitutional law, uh, the law can change through practice. And this is a paradox of both areas of law because sometimes those changes constitute violations and then sometimes those violations turn into subtle law. And often it's just in between and indeterminate. And as Sam implied, a lot of the law that's been made here in this area uh, has been determined by unilateral executive branch practice, which means that the executive branch is deciding what to do under both domestic constitutional law and domestic, excuse me, and international law. 
And the trend by the executive branch has been to expand its powers over time. That goes back to the very beginning of the Charter and the very beginning of the Constitution. There's been a clear trend in favor of executive branch expansion of those powers. And to top it off, there is no definitive interpreter. There's no set of principles. Or there's, no, there's no independent adjudicator to tell us what the right and wrong answer is. So I don't want to be a complete skeptic about constitutional law or international law, but in the issues we're discussing today, the truth is when someone says the law clearly says X, that's almost always an overstatement that needs to be unpacked. Now, when we get to the war crimes about Trump at the end, there are some clear rules. This is why, this is why I tend, and I don't always do this, but I tend when I'm talking about these issues to talk about executive branch precedent and practice, and then to note that that practice is often contested. Because I think that's the only the only way we can get an objective measure or a nearly objective measure about whether something new is happening and something untoward is happening is to measure it against past practice. But uh, so that's what I tend to do. But I, I want to say that um, that doesn't mean that executive branch interpretations either of the Constitution or of international law are necessarily right. So, Ashley, um we're we're before we get to any of the merits questions associated that with this we're getting into a pretty interesting kind of uh uh philosophical conversation about whether this is even law in some meaningful sense to begin with um you have spent uh, a a good portion of your career on on these war powers questions how do you understand that? Is it is it uh, is it is this an area where we should shouldn't be debating? You know, we we really should treat the law, the doctrinal answers, often as exhibited through executive branch precedent, as you know, hard law, or is it some soft softer combination of law and policy? Well, I suppose it depends who you're asking inside. The executive branch, but I think, from the perspective of the State Department, for example, um, the actors there would think of this as actual law, hard law, on which they can and should advise policymakers. So maybe this feeds into the conversation that um, that we were just having. I think one of the one of the reasons why it is um, uh, really complicated right now is the administration has not proffered its particular justifications on uh, either the domestic side or the international law side. We've seen five or six different suggestions. And I think that undercuts the idea that there is rigorous legal analysis going on inside the government. There may actually be that kind of analysis going on, but it seems as though it is not um, getting to the policymakers who are speaking to the press or being taken seriously by um, the, the people who are speaking to the press. But I mean, Jack is absolutely right that many, many of the, um, the, the legal issues here are contested. Which legal framework even applies to the killing? Um, what does it mean for a threat to be imminent? Is that the, the proper test today and so on? Um, those are all very much contested, but the executive branch does have views on this um, that it can and should be articulating as applied to this particular Situation. So I think the fact that um, we are not receiving a, um, uh, a specific analysis coming out of the executive branch means that the commentators are shooting at all sorts of different theories, um, trying to develop what theory might be uh, credible or not, and then trying to um, analyze and break down or shoot at that theory. So I think it would be very helpful for uh, there to be a single theory for a host of reasons um, uh, signaling that the administration does take the law to mean something here. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. All right. So with that as a, a, a kind of giant metaphysical wind up about the nature of the conversation that we're having, Scott, get us started with an overview of the sort of principal legal questions that we're that if you're going to do what Bobby says, which is separate the law from the wisdom question, um, and you're going to treat it, uh, in Sam's words, professionally, 
um, what are the major baskets of legal questions that you need to satisfy yourself that this was uh, uh, th the attack was appropriate before you can say with confidence what the Trump uh, administration did and what the what they ordered the military to do and the attack that carried out complies with their legal obligations. Uh, sure. Uh, just for the sake of kind of breaking down the questions, I'll focus on the domestic side first, and maybe we can have another round of the international because combining them is going to be a little complicated. Good. So let's break this out. Let's talk about the domestic law questions, and we'll deal with the international law questions later. Well, I, I'll break it down, and this is not news to any of our, our panelists, but for listeners' sake, I'll break it down to kind of the key legal questions. Um, essentially, under U.S. domestic law, uh, use of military force can be authorized by two basic sources, either by the president's Article II authority under the Constitution uh, or under a statute by Congress. Um, the executive branch's longstanding position on when it can use military force uh, relatively longstanding, although it's been this current formulation is a little newer, is that it can be used for us where there, it a serves a important U.S. national interest. There's been kind of expanding list. I think the last most recent 2018 OLC opinion basically suggests, well, almost any interest will really do. It's not a very constraining standard. There just needs to be some link between a U.S. interest uh, and the use of force. Uh, and that use of force has to be uh, of a nature, scope, and duration that falls beneath the level uh, of what co constitutes war in a constitutional sense. And that's a very convoluted standard. That's more or less the language that, that the Justice Department has used. But essentially, it means that it has to be a type of war that we don't think requires congressional authorization under the Constitution's declare war clause. In practice, that's usually meant large-scale extended durations with substantial risks, particularly where U.S. ground troops are involved. But the exact line is a little ambiguous there. Um, and I think it's important to note that that at least in the formulation, the original formulation of that sort of standard, which was in the 2011 uh, Libya OLC opinion, uh, that is all done on the assumption, or, or at least at least in the case that there is no contrary legislation. So Congress hasn't enacted legislation is the assumption this kind of standard is developed, and it may have different rules if Congress has. OLC hasn't, uh, doesn't opine on that in that exact opinion, um, and I suspect it would. Um, that's the kind of constitutional law question. The statutory law question becomes a question of the specific statutes. Well, what statutes has Congress enacted, and when does it say it can use force? We have two that are on the books that are particularly relevant here. One is the 2001 AUMF, which is a statute Congress enacted after the 9-11 attacks that authorizes the use of force essentially against the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks and those who harbored or supported them, uh, paraphrasing. And then there's a 2002 AUMF, uh, which authorizes the use of force for A, to enforce certain UN Security Council resolutions regarding Iraq. That's not really in play here, at least not by most accounts, although who knows what the administration's arguing, uh, and B, to uh, defend against threats from Iraq without really defining what that means. Uh, that was taken as authorization to invade Iraq in 2003 uh, for the U.S. military presence from 2003 through 2011 uh, and the activity that it pursued there. Um, and then more recently uh, is kind of supplementary authority for U.S. military strikes against ISIS uh, in Iraq and then in certain circumstances, quote unquote, uh, in Syria, um, in complementary with the 2001 AUMF, which more directly was seen as targeting ISIS as, as an extension of al-Qaeda effectively, although that, again, is a contested conclusion. Uh, and I think those are the basic domestic law questions and buckets you would be examining and weighing the domestic legal authority for the strike. Right. So to distill that to three simple questions, is it a legitimate act of uh, self-defense within uh, that triggers inherent constitutional authority? Question number one. If not, is it authorized by the 2001 AUMF? Or three, if not, is it authorized by the 2002 uh uh, 2002 AUMF on Iraq. Bobby, um, so to what extent does that uh, uh, that account of it satisfy you? So I want to complicate the Article 2 pathway by breaking it into two different pathways. Um, I very much agree with Scott that uh, in recent years, there's been a lot of attention to the idea of uh, executive unilateral authority to use the military uh, below the threshold of constitutional war, just as he described. Um, I actually don't think that pathway is the one that most plausibly is doing the work here. 
Uh, I think it's a separate pathway entirely to talk about the scenario in which maybe it's above that threshold. And therefore, maybe the prerogatives of Congress absolutely are implicated. But in that scenario, which we might just call the, the constitutional war power scenario, uh, there's still the divide between offense and defense. This idea that if the United States is attacked or if our personnel are attacked, there is some amount of unilateral executive discretion to use force in response to that. I think that is the most plausible claim the administration has here. So uh, the reason that matters, that the distinction matters, is that with the idea that there's unilateral authority below the threshold of war, as Scott described, it really matters whether there's significant escalation risk uh, for whatever reason. And, and if that matters, then that's a big deal here, because I think targeting Soleimani obviously has tremendous escalation risk. So under that model, this wouldn't be a very good argument, I would think. Um, but under the purely defensive model, the what some might call the prize cases model, uh, if you think that's what we've got here, that this was in fact a use of force in response to existing attacks that Iran had already conducted, um, then the escalation risk isn't I think part of the legal analysis at all. It's part of the policy analysis for sure, but not the legal analysis. Jack, do you uh, do, do you think this is an adequate account of, of of the fundamental domestic law questions? Yeah, I I think I'm about to say what I believe Bobby said is somewhat different, something different than Scott said, and I think this is the right way to think about it, but I'm not sure. So no, I think all of those those OLC precedents about use of force. Um, first of all, they don't tend to focus on self-defense, although some of them do in passing. Those were cases that were primarily about humanitarian intervention. And there's a long list of precedents about self-defense that might be somewhat more robust. But all of those precedents, all of those opinions are about initiating force. Um, and I think, and I think this is what Bobby was saying, I may just be saying it differently. I think the right way to think about what happened here legally is a, the United States is authorized to be in Iraq by the author, by the AUMF. I think it's that's one. Of, it's there primarily to fight ISIS and maybe Al Qaeda, uh, and I think that's what its primary mission is. B, um, it's been attacked in that mission by parties that it's not authorized to use force against. And there's an old principle that you're allowed to exercise self-defense when your when your forces are attacked. No matter where they are, why they are there, and that's a principle that's been invoked four or five times in an important context in the last ten years. And so then the only question becomes: so the, and it seems that this was clearly an act of. Or that's the question: Is this an act of self-defense, a proper act of self-defense in, in force protection or unit self-defense? And I think there, and I'm least confident about this, but I think there that the self-defense analysis is relatively easier than some self-defense claims we've seen over the years because there's been this ongoing, these ongoing attacks on U.S. forces in Iraq by um, Iran-backed militia forces or maybe Iranian forces and uh, lots of back and forth like that. And so in, the, in that context, I think it makes the self-defense argument fairly easy. Um, and so that's the way I see it in terms of how this fits into past precedents. Bobby, what do you, does that make sense? Y yes, exactly. Uh, I think that uh, this has more in common with 1986 Operation Eldorado Canyon, the Reagan strikes in Libya, uh, 1998 Bill Clinton's use of force against al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, both of which responded to prior attacks on U.S. personnel. Uh, I think it's much more analogous to that. And so I think it's uh, a mistake to go down the pathways either of, well, maybe this is just sort of a, a low-level national interest as opposed to a self-defense scenario, or to go down the path of, well, it's preempting an imminent attack. I realize the administration had a few officials out there that keep wanting to talk in those terms. Um, I don't think that's where the legal case is strongest. If I could just add two other precedents real fast, Ben. Again, I don't know if they're exactly on point, but they seem somewhat closer to this situation, or at least should be added in the mix. Um, there's several, but we several, a couple of times in Syria, we had we were there with U.S.-backed militia forces that were attacked, and I think in a couple of cases we used force and self-defense against Iranian interests in Syria. Um, and I think also that there was an al-Shabaab attack during the Obama administration where we were, again, 
had a military presence there that wasn't related necessarily to attacking al-Shabaab, but when they attacked forces that were there, we were able to act in self-defense with a very stretchy conception of eminence. So I think this I think this lines up pretty well with the precedents. But then this what I'm about to say shows why the law and policy distinction is important and why the law might not be the right frame. There are hugely, massively different consequences from exercising this legal theory in this context. And there are some factual differences as well. So to say that there are lots of precedents on point and that's the right way to think about it or the proper way to think about it legally is, again, not to say that this was a good idea. All right. So before I come to uh, back to Sam, who I suspect finds may find this uh, th- these precedential accounts uh, wholly unsatisfying, although I don't want to put words in his mouth. Ashley, I want to come back to a point that you made before, which is that this conversation would be a heck of a lot easier to have if the administration were actually articulating a legal theory uh, that underlies what they did at all. And so I, I want to ask you to elaborate that on that point a little bit and and talk about to what extent it is really even possible to read the tea leaves here of what the theory is without, you know, when you have Pompeo going out and talking in the language of imminent threat, the Defense Department issuing a statement that kind of teases continuing in imminence, but then also talks about it in terms of deterrence. And you have no document that actually says under what legal authority domestically, again, we're not even touching the international law components yet, no document that actually says what the legal theory is. Uh, Well, so I think that's absolutely right, that that is what um, everybody on Twitter and on the blogs is trying to do right now, is to parse out these little dots that the different administration officials, those breadcrumbs that they're um, leaving around. So I think what we're engaged in here is uh, an exercise in if the administration cared seriously about uh, domestic law, what would that analysis look like? What what would the executive branch lawyers put forward to the policymakers as a possible slash the best argument? That's in some ways, I think, what what we're doing here. I, you know, we could only speculate about the conversations that are going on inside the executive, presumably among uh, State Department, Defense, Justice Department, and um, NSC slash White House Counsel about um, what what the law is. And I and I actually wonder uh, the extent to which the lawyers are being asked to retroactively come up with the best argument rather than having been asked in advance what the best argument was. I think if there were a single document inside the government that had been cleared before this strike, everybody would be on the same page with their talking points. So that's a really interesting point. So, Sam, I think that tees up uh, your skepticism about the general body of law. And I think this is a like if I were had been arguing the things that you have been arguing over the last several years, I would feel pretty intellectually vindicated by the events of the last uh, few days. So uh, this first question is, do you feel inclined to to uh, to take an I told you so moment? And if so, uh, walk us through it. And if not, why not? Well, sure. I. I I just will start by saying that the general story has to be that the last two presidents and those before and their lawyers have you know, sowed the wind. And now we, we reap the whirlwind with Trump in office. And the, the really important question flesh is that what the point, conditions flesh that are. that point out, though. Like, in what sense have the last two presidents uh, uh, sowed the wind for for this? Well, I think it's clear on the international law side, but on the domestic side, we've seen uh, infinite elasticity, you know, as as Scott's recited, the first prong really doesn't exist anymore uh, under the Article 2 analysis. 
And the second prong is, is squishy. So the law seems to be do what you want to do. Now, I agree with Ashley that it would be nicer if lawyers were engaged in before the fact rationalization rather than after the fact rationalization as Bobby and Jack have done for us very plausibly. But is that, is that what we want our lawyers to be doing? So they, we want the legitimation uh, uh, after the fact or even before the fact uh, of, of just permission slip after permission slip. Uh, since after all, one act of illegality doesn't mean the next one copying it is legal. Um, so so in the, the real question is institutional. Does the fact that Trump is doing this rather than mainstream lawyering uh, of, under both parties lead us to think differently about how how we want to manage the law in this area? Um, I mean, I you know, I think Bobby and Jack have given some really good arguments, but um, pr precedents don't make it right any more than two wrongs make a right. Uh, and more than that, that it, it really is after the fact rationalization uh, from 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 what I can hear. Um, what what little Trump and his uh, his servants have said really outright contradict, uh, especially Bobby's proffered theory. I think it, they're closer to Jack's theory, which relies on, on an elongated imminent standard, which was out there, uh, both under uh, Bush and Obama. Uh, and so uh, I, I would be great to debate this once we really know what their before the fact and, and current uh, views are, but uh, Ashley's right that at a minimum we ought to demand transparency or a little more of it. Well, needless to say, I, I disagree that it's uh, not the administration's plausible view that there's been a pattern of attacks by IRGC directed forces on U.S. personnel. I think, as Ashley described, they they've had a mix and muddled message on whether it's uh, the 2002 AUMF or what other legal framework follows from this. But I think it's been relatively clear in all the statements that the executive branch takes the view. And, and by the way, this is not some surprise. I think this is something people have been talking about for years uh, and certainly all through the past fall, that the IR IRGC supports and provides weapons and direction and control to a variety of proxy forces that use, let's be real blunt, that use these weapons to kill people in Iraq, including American service members, or in the most recent instance, a contractor, and, and no small number of Iraqi authorities, uh, I'm making the claim that that opens the door to some degree of defensive use of force. And I actually think that's a fairly straightforward argument. Uh, they are definitely not expressing that clearly. I, I agree that that's not the way it should be. But the idea that it's all a post-talk rationalization, I, I don't think that holds water. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. All right, so there is this, I, mean, I think it is a remarkable statement about how irrelevant Congress often is to uh, modern war powers conversation that we've gotten 37 minutes into this conversation without the subject of Congress coming up other than Sam saying they're out to lunch. Um, so, but this week, Nancy Pelosi 
Uh, and can I just challenge you on that for a second? Yeah, sure. I mean, the reason we're in a, I, I just, in this context, I slightly disagree with that. I don't want to let ho Congress off the hook for affirmative responsibility. President Obama extended the AUMF to the Islamic State about eight years ago. And Congress has gone along with that through appropriations every year, knowing what it was doing. And we're in Iraq, which is a known dangerous place, and, it, and we've been fighting with Iranian proxies the entire time we're there. And the reason we're there is because Congress authorized and supports them being there. And the argument we're making is, and again, this is a legal argument, whether it was a good idea, but is that the troops were acting and the Defense Department was acting in self-defense in an authorized war. And so I just think it's, I think it's worse than you're saying. It's not that Congress has been silent. They've been complicit, but tried to kind of bury that fact. So I'm very glad you fleshed that point out because I actually agree with it completely. And I I think uh, Sam's out to lunch um, uh, comment actually does uh, – is generous in some sense. It implies – it implies merely – uh, negligent and irrelevant rather than in a kind of active way over time uh, uh, pushing responsibility away from itself and yet reserving the right to do, and this is a great segue, exactly what Nancy Pelosi did um, uh, last night, which is to say, uh, hey, wait a minute, we reserve the right to be involved in the permission structure here. So, so Scott, walk us through the congressional posture this week and what we can reasonably expect from Congress on the law of this stuff. Sure thing. Um, you know, we, we have, I think it's important to again set the stage with the statutory part of these arguments that I mentioned at the top um, that we haven't, haven't had an opportunity to return to yet. We do have these two outstanding AUMFs um, that have been subject to subsequent interpretations by multiple administrations at this point. As Jack noted, um, none of those, a number of those interpretations have arguably at least uh, been kind of affirmed or given congressional support through appropriations. Um, in a handful of cases, there are sometimes even more affirmative, um, arguable cases of congressional support where they've authorized related programs that are contingent upon certain interpretations of those AUMFs and that kind of builds on how they're used. Um, but that doesn't mean Congress couldn't, in theory, revoke or change or adjust that. We saw an effort for that, notably, I think, this past summer, where we saw uh, amendments introduced in the National Defense Authorization Act that would have prohibited uh, the use of any funds for use of military force against Iran. Um, in the final version, if I recall correctly, in the Senate side, at least, I think there was an exception built in for certain acts of self-defense. Um, so it's not entirely sure, depending on how you frame it, whether that would have prevented it here, but it certainly, certainly would have made reliance on, the AU, uh, on statutory authorization um, a much trickier case and arguably have pushed this into an even harder category where the president would have been acting in contravention uh, of a statutory prohibition, um, again, depending upon how you frame this act and where it fits in that legal framework. Um, that said, now this week we've seen another effort that's kicking off with uh, a resolution being introduced uh, presumably or apparently under the War Powers Resolution of 1973. Uh, this would be presumably a joint resolution um, in the House and the Senate, sponsored by Senator Kane and kind of spearheaded by Representative Slotkin in the House, um, that would use these expedited procedures in the War Powers Resolution um, to kind of force a vote uh, on this sort of military action and potentially install a resolution that directs their withdrawal. This is how it's been described, at least. I don't believe I've seen a text yet, at least if one is public of either version. Um, I think this runs into potential problems because the War Power Resolution, War Powers Resolutions, expedited procedures are generally intended for use um, to direct the withdrawal from hostilities that are being pursued without statutory authorization, without a declaration of war. Is the language used in the statute usually meant taken to mean statutory authorization. Um, and so, you know, insofar as a resolution claims to do more than that, it may run into head on into uh, a germaneness requirement that the Senate adopted. Uh, uh, last year, I believe, maybe two years ago now, as part of the debate, similar debate around war powers resolutions in Yemen, meaning it could get disqualified from the expedited procedures in the Senate, or if it were construed narrowly to only direct withdrawal from unauthorized hostilities, so it fits clearly within those procedures, it may not reach uses of force that the administration claims are reliant upon the AUMFs or other statutory authorization. So it's a tricky uh, question as to what exact impact these are going to be. 
if nothing else, so they may be good vehicles for forcing congressional vote, um, putting more political pressure on the administration. All right. So I want to turn to the international law side. Ashley, uh, to what extent is the international law issue argument really different from the domestic law argument? And to or to conversely, to what extent is it the same series of equities mapped onto a different set of legal authorities and standards? So I think there it's slightly different, I would say, um, uh, because it implicates questions about the sovereignty of Iraq uh, that are not necessarily captured by the domestic law debate that, um, that we've just talked about. So um, it seems to me that I think people have discussed kind of three different international law theories for what um, um, might have happened here. The, the most uh, widely discussed one, I think, is, uh, is one that tracks the kind of imminence questions that we've already mentioned. So um, if you think about uh, this in the framework of the, the UN Charter, then the US uh, is responding in either anticipatory self-defense or preemptive self-defense to, um, to an imminent armed attack by uh, Soleimani and uh, his forces, and the U.S. has, uh, for a long time, um, robustly embraced the idea of anticipatory self-defense, that is, the idea of being able to act before the attack has been fully completed. And in fact, during the Obama administration um, and Bush administration, the idea uh, was stretched a little bit further to what we sometimes call preemptive self-defense, where the actual uh, attack, the, the, the nature of the location, the timing may not be entirely certain, but um, there's real confidence that an attack will happen and you can act in the last clear window. So that's one way that people have thought about this in the international law framework. Um, I've also heard it suggested that maybe what happened here is that we were already in an armed conflict with, uh, with Iran slash with the Quds Force in light of the activities that had gone on for the past year, six months or so on. Um, and so that this is really just an exercise in targeting a senior military operative um, from those forces. So that was another theory. And then the, 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 alter the alternative theory that um, some people think, look, this is basically peacetime. Um, we are not at war with Iran. And so people are using the concept of assassination uh, that, that that's the U.S. was engaged in an assassination of Soleimani because we should be thinking about this in a kind of peacetime paradigm. Um, so that's sort of vis-a-vis -vis, um, vis -vis Iran, but I do think the, the idea of using force inside another state's territory um, that is not the subject of the, um, the force itself, in other words, that they weren't the ones sponsoring the armed attack, raises these additional international law questions. So... Um, I haven't seen the agreement between the U.S. and Iraq about uh, the basis on which our forces were in there, but Iraq, Iraq has made clear that they didn't give consent to us to engage in this uh, operation inside their territory, um, and that's led to activity within the uh, Iraqi parliament to try to um, potentially remove permission for us to be there. Um, I think the theory that the U.S. would have had to have been operating on is if they're using a, the self-defense paradigm that I just described, then they have to decide that force is necessary against Soleimani and that force is necessary inside Iraq. So I think they would basically have to have concluded that Iraq was unwilling or unable to suppress the threat posed by Soleimani um, by virtue of letting him come in, letting him um, conduct some operations from within Iraqi territory. So there are definitely overlaps in the two questions, but I think there's some different inquiries as well. So Bobby, um, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in, in your sense of the, uh, I, I, with Ashley's point that, that, that the Iraqi sovereignty questions clearly is a, is a feature of the international law discussion that has no, you know, no analog in, in the domestic law discussion. But uh, is it generally, from your point of view, like pushing that to the side for a minute, is it a generally plausible position that, look, if the threat is imminent enough, 
for domestic law purposes, it's going to be imminent enough, at least for for international law purposes, um, from uh, at least for international law purposes uh, in within the U.S. position as to what international law requires, and similarly. If there's an ongoing enough conflict for domestic law purposes for it to be authorized, it's really there's going to be a plausible international law argument for it within the broad confines of U.S. views of international law and its requirements. Or is or are they separate enough that you could really imagine a situation where the facts would support the domestic law invocation or but not support the international law legality or vice versa? Well, I'll begin by uh, trying to shift the premise from it all depending on an imminent future attack to a situation in which we have some existing attacks already. So we have a pattern of ongoing attacks. Um, but it's the same question either way. Do we have, should we just uh, map the one framework domestically onto the international framework or vice versa. Um, earlier, I distinguished between two different kinds of Article II claims of authority to have the military do something unilaterally. One was that the nature of what the military was going to do is below the threshold of war, so you don't even reach the constitutional questions. Set that aside and focus on the other path, the one I wanted to focus on, which is the idea that it is a self-defense scenario where we've been attacked. Um, if anything, I think the best way to flesh out what's in and what's out is actually to borrow from international law to inform the Article II analysis, since I think we have um, a, a wider array of, of examples and practices to draw on, and that the uh, the U.S. domestic law cases are kind of few and far between, in part because we have things like the 2001 AUMF that cover a lot of our conflicts. So I, so I do, I think that they're roughly analogous, if not precisely analogous, but I just think that international law probably has more to share about fleshing out the Article Two concept than vice versa. All right. So, Sam, you said earlier that you were uh, more concerned with the international law uh, erosion of restraint than you are with the domestic constitutional law argumentation. So, this is the area where I think your claim that the uh, you know the Bush and Obama administration uh, sowed the wind and the Trump is and Trump is 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 reaping it is kind of most dramatic. So so wh- why, from your point of view, is the international law side worse than the domestic law side? Well, I, just as a prefatory matter, I do want to uh, agree completely with Ashley that the kind of most intellectually interesting feature of all this is the the role of Iraqi consent and its power to withdraw its consent under international law. Um, but absolutely, I, I think international law shows very glaringly the costs of having a long-term homespun view of international law across administrations. And the reason it's more revealing is just because not a lot of Americans have interpret, not a lot of non-Americans have interpretations of Article Two, whereas lots and lots uh, have views about international law. And what we're seeing uh, in, in this particular case, and it, of course it depends what the theory is, um, uh, looks like how, how abuses in, in the, the past decade or two um, are just being repeated here. So the first is the shift from imminence to preemption. Um, famously, that occurred in, in George W. Bush's national security strategy, but Obama's lawyers also reread the word imminent to mean impending. Uh, really, as far in, in advance and pretty speculatively as 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 you want. And that is not a revision that the language tolerates or that interpreters abroad accept. Um, Ashley's problem about Iraqi consent could get solved by a theory with which she's associated, the unwilling or unable theory, but that also, again, introduced uh, principally under the Obama administration has not, you know, to put it mildly, one universal consent 
abroad. And then finally, targeted killing in peacetime, if, if, that's, if that's the theory, I, I think there, there's lots and lots of opinion uh, that extrajudicial uh, killing is illegal under international law. So it, w depending on which of, of, the, of, of the pathways we follow Ashley down, we, we encounter different objections. Um, but they all amount to the same, which is that the the potential consequences of a permissive and parochial uh, interpretation of international law, uh, it let's say, come home to roost uh, uh, in unexpected ways and under presidents you might not like. All right. So, Jack, um, is your view uh, similar to your view on the domestic side that the and would be consistent with what Sam just said, that the precedents here in at least U.S. construction of, of international law, that this fits reasonably comfortably within it? Or do you see this as an area where the, the, there may be significant deviation? I'm not sure what you precisely what you're asking, but I'll answer it this way. Um, so I think I agree with much of what Sam just said in that, A, the predicate, the legal predicates for the international law argument here were definitely set under Bush and Obama, uh, both of whom used an unwilling and unable standard uh, understanding of self-defense. Obama made it more robust than it's ever been before, both of whom adopted self-consciously a st very stretchy concept of eminence. Um, understanding of eminence uh, in the USAD bellum context. So I, I actually think that under those precedents, this is, again, a pretty easy case under the U.S. precedents, and it's a combination of unwilling and unable and the eminence idea, and those two ideas, I think, uh, satisfy the U.S. understanding of the charter in terms of what self-defense means. Now, I want to underscore that this is a very, very, very long road from the original charter, which says that uh, under Article 51 that a nation can act in self-defense in response to an armed attack. And while the United States has been getting some support globally, uh, I think more than, than has been led on for both eminence, for its understanding of eminence and unwilling and unable, it, there's no doubt that it, it's a relatively out there theory. Uh, although it's kind of settled now across three administrations in the United States. I also want to say one more thing about international law, and I'm not sure I'll get this all right, but um, this situation, we're talking about old principles from 1945 as interpreted over the last 70 or 80 years. And the situation right now in Iraq is just completely weird and unprecedented. You have the United States with which is there with limited consent to fight against non-state actors. Uh, you have um, another nation which is supporting some of the, some, some different non-state actors that is attacking the United States there. And then you have it being led by um, and it's kind of on the sly from a country adjacent to Iraq. And then you have the, one of the leaders of that country show up in Iraq. I, and I didn't capture all that well, but I just want to say that this is a very strange factual situation. It's very hard to say um, that the international law principles apply here straightforwardly. For one thing, it's weird to say to use the unwilling and unable context when we have presence by consent in the country, uh, but it's a limited presence. So that's basically what I think. And it's limited consent. Scott. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I was going to add one small factor of additional weirdness here, which is that the individual, one of the individuals killed alongside Soleimani was a Mr. Mohandas, who's the head of Qatab Hezbollah uh, in Iraq, an Iran-associated militia, uh, but then more relevantly is a arguably at least an Iraqi government official um, as Qatab Hezbollah and other Iraqi militia groups have been incorporated into um, the Iraqi security forces apparatus somewhat mostly de jure, although there's a little bit of question there, um, certainly not de facto as they operate with a lot of autonomy, uh, but since 2016, um, which raises another specter in terms of, um, you know, use of force, uh, you know, arguably directly against Iraq. Um, in the Soleimani strike, you know, it seems like Soleimani was clearly the target, so it's a little bit different. But then if you also incorporate the December 29th airstrikes directly against Qatab Hezbollah sites, um, that's a, an added quirk that definitely complicates the situation. Ashley. 
So I think I just want to make the point that facts matter. And the stronger the facts about the imminence of the threat, the more easily the U.S. international legal theory would go down with, with allies and with um, actors whose views we care about. So if it really were a genuinely very serious imminent threat, then uh, I think the interpretation of international law would be more palatable. If it's a very attenuated threat, it would be it will be much more controversial. But Ashley, can I ask you about that? It, it, imminence in the context of ongoing attacks, how, isn't that different than a lot of the imminence questions where we haven't been attacked yet? Um, well, I mean, it's often the case that the reason we decide to act in uh, in a con context of imminent self-defense is that we're confident that the, the next attack will materialize based on what we'd seen come before. But um, but I think the way that people are interpret that the way that people generally interpret imminence in the anticipatory self-defense world, if that's the hat we have on, look for. Um, really a pressing threat where there's very little time to, to explore other options. So even in the series of the kind of pace that we're seeing with Iran, um, I think they would still want to see uh, a level of imminence to, to make our action, um, again, feel, seem more palatable. So before we wrap up, I want to uh, chat briefly about this other legal issue that has arisen over the next over the last few days. It's old in some ways, but it's new in this context, which is the president uh, promising publicly to uh, uh, hit uh, culturally significant uh, uh, Iranian sites, uh, which is specifically prohibited in international law. The president also threatened yesterday to uh, impose sanctions on Iraq if they withhold, con uh, if they ask U.S. troops to leave, which is their, as Ashley points out, their sovereign entitlement. So, um, Bobby, uh, how should we understand these promises from the president to do things that sound a heck of a lot like war crimes to me? Well, I think you just said it. Uh, I think it's perfectly clear, uh, setting aside whether something's got cultural relevance or not, civilian objects cannot be purposely targeted unless they're being used for military advantage. Uh, this seems pretty straightforwardly to be an assertion that we would attack and intentionally target civilian objects. That is, is a plain violation of distinction. You can't do that. Uh, and I don't think that DOD would do it, frankly. Yeah, this is Jack. I, I agree with that. I mean, Donald Trump has managed to threaten to do, to commit clear war crimes, both in attacking cultural property and in committing what he described as disproportionate uh, attacks. Um, and, you know, there's nothing to say other than that it's just completely out of bounds. And I'll, I'll just I'll just say this also. You know, his usual rhetoric is bad enough on this stuff. It's bad for the country. But this has a I think it has a devastating impact inside the Defense Department, which is it just must be terrible right now to have the commander in chief basically spouting threats to commit war crimes. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to exaggerate the impact there, I think. Ashley, you, um, I, I'm this, both you and Scott, I'm, I'm interested for your thoughts on this because it, it, there's a history here during the campaign. Uh, the president promised to do way worse than waterboarding. Uh, and when, you know, even those who argued that waterboarding wasn't torture argued, you know, contended that it was the line. So when you promise to do something way worse than waterboarding, it's actually inconceivable to me how you could make an argument that something could be way worse and not uh, and not uh, torture. Um, then he pardons a series of people who are uh, um, accused of violating the laws of war and now this. So I'm Ashley first and then Scott. I'm just curious for your thoughts on the pattern as well as this question of could you plausibly impose sanctions on Iraq for asking uh, or with withholding its consent for U.S. troops to be present? Um. So I think our allies are probably aghast, not probably. I think our allies will would be aghast. I think people in the State Department and Defense Department, as Jack said, will be 
aghast by things that look like promises to um, engage in serious violations of international law. And I think it might be captured in, in Pompeo's statement where he walks that back and says our targets will um, kind of respect the existing parameters. Um, it sounds like maybe somebody got to him and said, <laughs> uh, doing what the president suggested would be a war crime. Um, on, on the question of sanctions, so imposing sanctions is not, uh, you know, doesn't rise to that level. States impose sanctions on each other all the time. I do think that um, it really undercuts the quality of consent that Iraq will have given us if uh, the consent is sustained under a, th a threat of, you know, forcing the Iraqi government to pay billions of dollars. I query how the U.S. could enforce that uh, in any obvious way. Um, so uh, while I don't think it rises to the same level of um, of, a, of, a, of a, a violation of international law uh, to say that you're going to impose sanctions, I think it would very much undercut the quality of the consent that the Iraqis have given us to be there. Yeah, I'll pick up on that. Um, on the sanctions point, I'll circle back to the other one. Uh, on the sanctions point, it's a little bit of a complicated picture, actually, because um, Iraq has been heavily reliant upon a waiver that the U.S. government has issued uh, in relation to U.S. sanctions on Iran regarding oil purchases and other uh, purchases related to the oil sector for related products like fuel oil and things like that. Um, it, it's something that the United States has issued regularly for many years, uh, always under some controversy this, under this administration, particularly because it, of its maximum pressure campaign against Iran. Um, so I suspect that that is what the president is referring to. Um, and that actually, I think, is a bit of a real um, point of pressure um, against uh, Iraq. Agree with Ashley, it really does kind of undermine this concept of consent that we're looking for. Um, but uh, but I do think there's a, a mechanism there that, that, while the president didn't articulate it very clearly, he could arguably use. Um, going back to the, uh, you know, the idea of, of consent more broadly, you know, there's a debate going on right now about what exactly Iraq's next move is going to be. We saw the Iraqi parliament vote uh, in a what is apparently described as a non-binding measure saying U.S. troops should withdraw. Um, perhaps more importantly, yesterday at that parliamentary session, we saw uh, the current caretaker prime minister, Adil Abdel Mahdi, come in and say publicly U.S. troops should withdraw, adopting that as his public position. Um, there are reports uh, that today he was going to walk in and have a meeting with Ambassador Toller, the U.S. ambassador there, and make exactly that request. So we'll have to see. Um, the idea that the United States would try and persevere there um, without Iraqi consent, I think, raises just a lot of dangerous questions. Um, it is what the United States did there in 2003 under, under the 2002 AUMF, um, but it's such a different situation. And this is a government that we've been trying to bolster their uh, effectiveness um, and so undermining their consent there. And then there's just a question of whether U.S. activities there could persevere in the sort of security environment that would inevitably arise without a level of Iraqi government support. Um, that said, the Iraqi government is balkanized, and um, you know I don't think you can entirely rule out some sort of faction continuing to try and find ways to cooperate with the United States, but I find it highly dubious and likely to be unsustainable. Sam, I want to give you the last word. Uh, this is a, uh, a, a, a an area in which neither Bush nor Obama seems to me to have have in any way prepped the ground for what Trump is doing here. Uh, um, do you disagree with that or do you do you see more kind of continuity in in the in Trump's behavior with respect to prior administrations here than I do? Or is this just an area where he really is uh, out on his kind of wildly own limb? It's a great question, Ben. He, it, uh, no one would ever claim that Trump's utterly continuous with the past. He's a unique figure. But of course, there were the early Bush years uh, when there, there, there was principled use in bellow illegality uh, set right. Uh, and the, the truth, however, is that uh, Trump has proved a weak actor in promising to restore brutal war uh, and war crimes, not least thanks to the congressmen in his own party uh, and, and the military itself. Where the continuity lies is really on use of force, uh, where he seems to have become the, the heir of the uh, permissive doctrines 
than the presidentialist doctrines of prior administrations. We're going to leave it there. Uh, this has been a special edition of the Lawfare Podcast, uh, which is, as always, produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks to Sam Moyne, to Ashley Deeks, to Scott Anderson, to Bobby Chesney, to Jack Goldsmith for joining us today. And big thanks to Michaela Fogel for organizing it all together. Apologies for the state of my voice and uh, for some of the audio quality glitches that you'll probably hear. Uh, that happens when you have so many people remote. Uh, and it's just a cost of doing this kind of business. Uh, if we had music on special editions of the Lawfare podcast, it would be performed by Sophia Yan, but we don't, so it isn't. You can buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com. And if you have not tweeted about the Lawfare podcast, shared the Lawfare podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and whatever podcast distribution services you use, get on it, people. And of course, leave us a review and a rating. And as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.